0: See, are there any kids in here? Here, kids? So there's three. Great, three kids. Um, That's fantastic. Good thing we changed everything just to meet the needs of the three kids. Um, Now, throughout the summer, we know there's going to be a lot of kids in here, so we've done some things to kind of help with that. Um, This summer, I'm really excited to be with you. For those who don't know me, I'm Josh Walker. I'm the president of the Bible College, Eternity Bible College, as well as one of the elders here at the church. I'm very excited to be starting an 11-week series this uh, for the course of this summer, um, and so this week is going to be primarily introductory and uh, just kind of setting the stage for what we're going to be doing this summer, um, and I hope it'll be helpful for you guys to see where we're headed. Um, the first thing is, if you've got kids in here, just to say a couple things that'll be helpful for you. Um, at the tables that are kind of between the two doors, there's two tables out there. There's crayons and paper that are there for your kids if you want to grab something for them to uh, think through what they're hearing and maybe draw some pictures in addition to that on both those tables There's an ESV children's Bible which has some great pictures in it. Just one note the pictures in the Bible are already colored So if you happen to get the children's Bible and the set of crayons, we just hope the two shall not go together um, So they can at least survive the summer now the, the crayon or the books, Sorry, the Bibles aren't for you to keep if you could put them back after the service So other people could keep using them if you like them. They're a wonderful resource it's the same text of scripture that uh, we'll be using so kids can follow along. Um, the other thing is, I, I don't want this summer just to be a time where if you've got kids with you, uh, you know, I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and so I understand that it could be basically just like, just be quiet so I can hear the message. You know, I don't want you to be gritting your teeth. I, I hope the kids will be able to engage to some degree. Um, One of the ways to do that is for them to follow along in Scripture. Another one is for them, what my kids find very helpful is to take a piece of paper and as they hear, basically draw stuff and write stuff. Maybe for some of you adults that might be helpful. Just, you know, take some notes maybe be helpful. Um, But help them that way. But there's one thing I just want to make clear. You're the parents and I'm not. And so if you've got kids here, know that my job is to try and teach you as much as I can. And I'll try and do it in such a way that kids can engage. But at the same time, it's really your responsibility throughout the week um, to teach your kids these things. And we're going to have some illustrations and some pictures and some various things that will help. Those will be available on the website as well um, to be able to walk your kids through. And I found it very helpful with my kids this week as we got them done. Kind of, They were my guinea pigs for some of this stuff. So that's my responsibility and that's yours. And um look forward to where we're headed. Now the thing we're going to be talking about is the story of God, and this eleven-week series is going to be um, just going back over and over the story of God. And I believe this summer can be incredibly, um, an incredibly transformational time for you, because many of you have probably never heard the Bible taught in its whole panorama of the story from beginning to end in one sermon. And we're going to do that eleven times, really. Um, we're going to not, We're not. It's not going to be the same sermon eleven times in a row, um, but. The Bible retells the story in all sorts of various nuanced ways, various uh, themes are carried through, and I think you'll start to see the beauty of that, and uh, part of what I want to share with you this morning is why we're going to do that. Um, But before I get to that, I want to talk about the word story, because when I use the word story, I know some of you think in your heads, made up, you know, not real, it's just some kind of made up story once upon a time. And the story that we're talking about is different. It isn't just any made up story. The story we're going to talk about is the true story of reality. This is really where everything came from. This is really what happened when everything went wrong. This is really what happened 2,000 years ago, and it's really where things are headed. Um, So we have to think of it as a true story. In addition to that, this story is different than all other stories because it's comprehensive. It covers everything possible. It explains all the different questions about life, between where we came from to where we're headed, everything in between, who you are, why you were created, what's your purpose on earth. This story explains all of that, and so it's important for us to know it. So first of all, why do we need to understand the story of God? The first reason is because we all need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. Sometimes as Christians we think that all we need to do is we need to hear the gospel, and it's pretty simple. It's kind of you know this four-point little message. I believe those four points, and then I'm saved. And then I live my life as a Christian until I get to die and go to heaven to be with God. And in between there, I've got to kind of figure out life. And maybe the Bible kind of helps me a little bit here and there. I want to do away with that idea. And I want you to realize that you and I need the gospel. We need to know the story. And we need people to retell the story to us on a regular basis. We need to learn how to remind ourselves of the story. We need to, as we gather as believers together, to remind each other of the various aspects of the story and to retell it to one another so you can't remind yourself of it and you can't tell it to one another if you don't know it right so that's one of the reasons why we want to know it and we want to know it well and know it in a bunch of different ways so that you will be able to tell each other because the reality is that we are all very forgetful people right remember what i just said (laughs) about half of you did i know it we're very very forgetful people And God knows that about us, and so he's designed various things for us to remind us of aspects of the story. Every time someone comes up here and gets baptized, that ought to remind us of a whole panorama of story of Scripture. But I imagine for most of us we don't because we don't really know that part of it. We only know a little bit of it, and so it reminds us of that. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, God says particularly that he designed that to remind us of certain things that happened in the past and certain things that are going to happen in the future. But if we don't know that story, then the meaning of that event for us is much less. But as we gather as believers, it's something that we should do is to be reminding one another. So one of the reasons we're going to tell the story of God is because we all need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. And so let's figure out how to tell it to one another. Now, the second reason, which is related to the first, is that most of you hate evangelism. Am I telling the truth? I mean, come on. Most of you really don't like going out and telling people the gospel. And I would suggest to you the main reason is because you've learned one way of telling the story, if even that, and that one way of telling the story really doesn't work real well right now with the way most people think today. That way of telling the story usually is kind of four spiritual laws, right? That God is holy, you're a sinner, you're separated from God, Jesus. You guys familiar with that, right? And that then you're taught, it seems like most of evangelism training is teaching you how to convince people that they want to hear that story. Rather than looking at all the various ways that God describes the good news and saying, you know what, this person, maybe they would hear it better this way. Or they would hear it better this way. And so we're always spending our time and we're miserable trying to figure out like, okay, how can I get them to just listen to this one way that I know how to tell the story? And it ends up making us miserable. And it's also not very good for the way we talk to one another. Now understand that every way we tell the story, Jesus Christ is the center of it. He is the hinge and the climax of all of history, no matter what way we retell the story. But know that most people today, they aren't concerned with, about being, with being guilty before a holy God. They just aren't. They're not real concerned with being guilty before anyone. What they're a lot more concerned with is, why do I exist? Who am I? What's my purpose? Is there any purpose in this world? Does this book answer those questions? Is there a story you can tell them to say, listen, God has a purpose for you? And that purpose culminated in Jesus Christ. And here's who he wants to make you into. And maybe at some other point, you can tell them the story that involves their guilt and things like that. But what I want you to do is by the end of the summer, you will have at least 10 different ways that you can tell the gospel story. And I hope by you seeing us do it in various ways, you will start to think, wow, I wonder if the story works out from this kind of perspective. And you'll be able to walk through the story and see it. So there'll be more than just those 10. There'll be a bunch of different ways. Now, in addition to that, just the way that we're made up, the way that as human beings we are created, we use stories to give meaning to our experiences, to everything that happens in our life, as well as to any statements of truth. That every day, this week, you had either a really horrible week, a really good week, or a really just kind of apathetic week, right? It's pretty easy. Now, every experience that you had, if you had a horrible week, there was some experience or set of experiences that made this week miserable. You figured out what the meaning of that experience was in light of the story that you really believe, of why all things are happening. If it was a great week, it was the same thing. You understood why that happened to you in light of the whole story. Let me give you an example. Let's say this afternoon you go out and you're driving down the freeway, and I hope this doesn't happen to any of you, but you're in a horrible car accident, cars totaled, For you know, everyone thinks you, you should have been dead, but you live. You're going to ask the question, why did I live? Right? You're probably going to ask the question, why did I get in the accident? But let's set that aside for a second and just say, why did I live? And depending on your perspective, where you come at it, you're going to have completely different answers. You see, if you're like most of the people in this culture where you just believe that you know, there is no God, there is no ultimate purpose, there's just random you know, sets of events and occurrences, you're going to say, well, I survived it because I was lucky. It just, it just happened that way. There's no reason, right? If you're a Hindu and that's your background and that's your story, then what you're going to say is, well, I had some good karma, and that's why I survived. I had done enough good works to accumulate for myself this set of karma that then now I kind of redeemed it to save me, and that's why I survived. Or if you were a Muslim, Muslims really believe that everything is Allah's will. Whatever Allah wants to do is fine, and so they would just look at it and say, well, it was Allah's will that I survived. If they would have died, Allah's will that I died. Just It doesn't matter. But as Christians, wouldn't we, if we survive that, we'd look at it and we'd say, man, God was so merciful to me. I probably should have died. And the reason I survived, wouldn't we say something like, well, I probably have a purpose here, right? Now, do you see how that same event gets interpreted completely differently depending on what the story is that you believe of what's happening in this world? So if you want to live the way the Bible calls you to live, you have to understand the whole story so you can fit experiences of life into that. Now, not only are experiences of life, but statements of truth, for us, always get interpreted in light of our understanding of the story. For example, if I said, I overheard two people, one person said to the other one, I love you. What did they mean? You don't know, right? It all depends on what the story was in the context of which that was said. So, for example, let's say I I told you the whole story was something like this, that there was... um, a rebellious teenage son that got into a fight with his dad and they had a big argument over something kids argue about, uh, which friends to hang out with and what they could do and how late they could stay out. Got into this big argument with his dad, and he stormed out, and after he leaves, his dad's sitting there and he realizes, wow, I I really said some things I shouldn't have said. And the son, as he goes away, he starts realizing, wow, I I really reacted in the way I shouldn't have and I need to go back. And he comes back and they sit down and they sit across the table from each other and they talk things out and you know, they, they work through the different issues and they get towards the end and the father, the tears streaming down his cheek, looks across at his son and he says, son, I love you. Now that has meaning, right? And the meaning comes from the context of the story. That I love you in that context means I forgive you, I will always care for you, I will never abandon you, I always want to work things out when we're in trouble, right? All that meaning comes from the context of the story. So every time you hear a phrase, you're going to do the same thing. You're going to interpret it in light of what you think all everything is that's going on. Let me give you one other example. I could do a bunch of examples of I love you stories, but um, one that I think is most pertinent for us. What if there was a Jewish rabbi that several thousand years ago, he, he had a small group of followers, and that they spent time with him for a couple of years, and they, did, they went everywhere he went. They saw everything he saw. They ate with him. They did everything with him. And all the while, they always called him Master. He said, master or rabbi, and he called them his servants. And then one day, he says, you know what? We need to gather together, and we're going to have a special meal, because I'm going to die. And they don't even know that. They don't understand that. And at that meal, before the meal, he gets down, and he washes their feet. He washes their mucky, dirty, dung-covered feet from what they, where they've been walking. And then they have that meal together. And after that meal, he shares many things with them. And one of the things he shares with them, he says, you've called me master and you've been my servants, but I want to change that today. I want you to call me your friend because you are now my friends. And then he looks at him and he says, and friends, the greatest love that a friend ever shows for another friend is that he lays down his life for his friends. That's the greatest love. And then that rabbi looked each one of them in the eye and said, I love you. And the next day he was crucified. You see, I love you in that context carries with it so much more meaning. So when I look at someone and if I say Jesus loves you, that's meaningless outside the context of the whole story, right? That we have to understand the story in order to understand statements like that. Any statement of truth always gets interpreted that way. Now, here's the problem for us. As humans, basically what we believe, I call it a belief blender. And it's basically you have a smoothie of religious beliefs. That Just like you take a smoothie and I don't know what you like to put in yours, but I I like banana... You know, a little bit of fruit juice, maybe some ice cream, so it's not quite the healthiest smoothie. Maybe some of you guys could do protein powder, you know, you push it all in there and then you, you mix it all up and then that's what you live on. Well, we do the same thing with beliefs. That, you know, maybe when you were born you were raised in a you know, a, a good, kind of solid Midwestern American family, and you learn that, you know, America's good, capitalism is great, and that all kind of goes in there. And that at one point, you know, you come to know Jesus and so you start to kind of throw some jesus stuff in there but you know what advertising is constantly pushing on you that you need to kind of live for yourself so you put some live for yourself in there and and that's what you live on and so we all live on this kind of mixed cocktail of belief and the danger of that is let's say that i come to christ and the main thing that's in my smoothie is kind of the main story that's out there right now and that is that this world is all about you and you need to consume as much as you can and you need to live life for pleasure and joy, and then you come to Jesus, and someone tells you Jesus loves you, so you take your smoothie, you drop in a little Jesus loves you, and bzz, what do you get? Well, Jesus must want to do everything for me, right? Jesus, because I mixed in Jesus loves me with what I believe in all these other areas, so Jesus must want to like make my life great, and prayer must mean that like he'll give me anything that I want, and he's going to give me lots of money and make me really happy, and... And you see how out of the context, if you just mix it into your old story, you're going to believe a lie. And there's some of you in this room right now that you've got a mixed cocktail that's pretty nasty that is, is causing you to live in the wrong way because you've mixed in truths from this book with a whole other belief system and blended it together, and you're living in light of that. So the point is that when, when we come to follow Christ... We not only just believe a set of like, okay, you know, Jesus lived, he died, he rose again, okay, I'm good, and I'm going to throw those in my blender with all my other stuff. No, he says, you're going to dump out your blender. Well, we never actually do that. What we do is kind of scoop some out and we add some good stuff in. Then we realize, ah, there's more ucky stuff in here. Let's get it out and add some more in. And that's really what the course of the summer, I hope, is going to happen is you guys are going to realize, you know what, there's stuff in my blender I need to get out and I need to put some good stuff in instead. I need to start making this thing I'm living on a little bit more healthy. And that's what God calls us to do because it's incredibly dangerous for us to live in light of a false story because it will lead you to live in really bad ways. Not only that, God designed us to know him through stories. It's so funny to me that okay, the way that we get to know people, like let's say there's someone you want to really get to know, there's a young man that kind of sees a young woman that he'd really like to get to know. Um, he says to her, so tell me about yourself. And if she went, well, you know, I'm 5'6", um, I weigh 120, which she'd never tell him anyway, um, or she'd lie. Um, and I, I was born in Missouri, and um, I'm 21 years old in three months. Like, okay, a bunch of facts. That was really helpful. But isn't that the way we think we know God? We go around and I say, well, you tell me about God. Oh, well, he's omniscient and he's omnipotent, and he does this. You know. And we think like a list of facts mean we know someone. Then when, you, when that young man asked the young woman, tell me about yourself, he wanted to hear a story, right? The story of your life. Tell me what, you know, the ups and downs. If you were to ask me, I'd say, okay, you know, when I, I was born in 1972 in the height of the hippie movement. My middle name is Rama as a result. I'm not kidding. You can't make that stuff up. That's, Yeah. It's one of the Hindu gods. That's my middle name, right? Right. You're already starting to know something about me, right? And I could walk you through the story. I could say, i got a hole from an earring that I had, and I could tell you a story that goes with that. And you would start to know about me as I told you that story. God designed us to know and be in relationship through the context of story, and especially he designed for us to know him that way. But often we live as if he's just a set of facts, And so if we know God's story, we will know him better, and it will be better for us. And then finally, the other reason we're going through the story of God is there's no other way for you really to understand where Cornerstone's heading. As we're talking about mission and community and all the different things the leadership is talking about, you're not going to understand where we're headed unless you understand the story of God, because the leadership didn't just like read in some ministry magazine some fad of ministry about community and say, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's try that for a while. No, we started, as we looked at this book, we started to realize, you know what? There's some ways in which the way we do church really doesn't fit with the way the story is laid out. And as we go through the summer, I'll point out some different ways for you that it just becomes clear as you look at the story that some of the way we used to do things, it just doesn't make sense if you look at the story and that we have to change these things to be about what God wants us to be about. So I hope it's going to help you in that regard as well. Um, Enough talking about the story Let's tell the story. Does that sound better? Now, we've got some slides, so hopefully we'll get one of them up here in a second. There we go. Um, I just want to publicly say thank you to two people. Becky Sahenick helped put together all these and did all the icons, and then the, the drawings that you're going to see in a minute. Um, Carrie Ann Rolera did those, and she did them as a, um, for a class that I taught at the Bible College. She and her husband did a children's book, uh, which was fantastic, where he did all the text and she did the illustrations. So you'll, you'll see some of the illustrations here as well. And it should be um, incredibly helpful. Now, here's the story that I taught my kids this week. Like I said, I got a, f- a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, right? The story is easy enough for a five- and a seven-year-old to get. Because I basically said, okay, let's talk about four things. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And I kept just going through until my kids got it. And then I asked them, okay, creation, what's that about? Tell me what that means. Fall, what does that mean? Explain that to me. And just kept walking them through. And then last night, and I'll, I'll share this with you a little bit later, but... Last night, I was able to take this and what I've been teaching them this week and help my son who was upset about something realize why he shouldn't be upset and kind of change the way that he was thinking, just in light of the story and them learning the story. So that's where we're headed. There's three things I mainly want you to get out of today. The first one is the relationship between creation and new creation. You notice how the pictures look pretty much the same, just new creation is a little bit brighter and it says new and improved if you can't read it. That wasn't just because it was easier to make the slide. We did that intentionally. I want you today to understand that our eternal destiny is on a new earth that is amazing and is so much more like this earth than any of you had probably ever thought. And we'll get into that. Um, You might think I'm a heretic afterwards and I'm okay with that. Um, Because scripture, I think, is on my side. Um, So that's one of the main points. Creation to new creation, that they're directly related to one another. The second one is that God has a plan. And his plan is never thwarted. So when God wanted to go from creation all the way to the end, what he wanted to do from the beginning, his plan will not be stopped. He has a plan. He works it out. He never stops. And then the third thing is that whenever man messes it up, whenever man tries to go his own way, which you guys all have experiences like this in your life, you try and go a different way than God says, that it always messes things up, but God always has a plan of redemption. He always will fix it. He always has a plan for how he's going to fix it and bring it back to what he wants to do. Amen. All right. Second slide. And I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 1. Creation. And there's intentionally an upward slope there. Because I think sometimes we read the creation account, and it's like, okay, Adam and Eve are you know in the garden, and we think that what was supposed to happen from there was pretty much the two of them were just kind of going to live in the garden rather than realizing, no, God had intended for them to make something amazing out of this world to take what he started with there and to create something amazing with it, for it to proceed to something. So in Genesis chapter 1, he writes this, the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and he continues on through the rest of chapter 2, and he creates light, and he creates oceans, and he creates the earth, and plants, and trees, and sea animals, and birds, and land animals, and then finally he ends with, in chapter 1, verse 26, he says, And then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And that's the end of the sixth day. You see, God made something incredible and amazing there at the beginning. Now, I want to show you kind of a little picture. This is how Carrie Ann uh, envisioned creation. And, uh, yeah, that's me. If uh, you haven't figured that out yet, yeah, when it's your professor, and you'll see why she wanted to make that me. And just note how amazing creation is, right? And sure, it's, you know, an illustration, but creation's happy, Right? And everything's amazing, and the, the trees and the clouds even are all smiling, and the bird's happy, and there I am with the lion, and I'm in my birthday suit. Um, that's awkward. Yeah, there's an appropriately placed leaf, which wasn't really there, but, you know, we just thought, probably should keep this PG. Um, the happy little bunny and the lion, there together, and, you know, the lion's not eating the bunny yet. Um, and see, creation was happy, and... I want to introduce a a Hebrew word to you, Um, and it gets translated as the English word peace, and I don't like the English word peace because it really doesn't convey the original meaning. The Hebrew word is shalom. Can you say shalom with me? Shalom, Shalom, which uh, Jews will use to greet each other. Arabs use the uh, Arabic term salam, which is related to it, and it's a word that doesn't just mean peace the way we think of it. Like We think of peace as not fighting. And that isn't at all what is conveyed by the term shalom. Shalom is when things are the way they should be. When God and creation and mankind is all operating in a right relationship with one another so that everything is amazing and everything works together exactly the way it should be, that's shalom. So when God created and it was very good, it was in shalom. It was in the state of perfection, amazing, functioning together, where man was ruling over creation in a really healthy, wonderful way. And mankind related with one another properly and related with God. Remember what Adam did with God in the garden? He walked with him, right? I mean, amazing. When you you read that and you think, that's just really the way that it, it seems like it should be. And then God says, yeah, that is exactly the way that I intended it to be. And then God's point, if you look at the next slide, was to take creation and for it to become new creation. You see, from the very beginning... This plan that we read, and we're going to read at the end of Revelation, of what it was going to be like, where you took a garden and it becomes a garden city. Don't don't think of the city in the New Jerusalem as being like cities you think of today, right? Where it's all kind of dark and dirty and grimy and all that. Think of a, a city that's filled with gardens and trees and rivers flowing down the middle and just the most amazing city that you can imagine in your head, and it's even better than that. That God intended that garden to become that amazing garden city. That he intended the two people to become nations. And he intended them, as they ruled over the garden, to eventually have man rule in a healthy way over the entire earth and to make something of it. You see, often we look around and we think, man, everything around us, just man messed it up. But you know what? Really, in a lot of what we see is what God intended for us to do. He wanted us to take what he gave us and make something out of it. He didn't want us just to live in a garden forever and just kind of eat fruit off the trees and just hang out together, right? He wanted us to make a city. A city is the most concentrated form of cultural activity that there is, right? He wanted us to make art and to make music and to make things and and all that kind of stuff. And that was his intention from the beginning. That was where creation was headed. Um, Read with me and we can flip to the, the next slide. So I read Genesis 1 to you and in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth now we're going to read at the very end of the story. This is where it started and this is where it's headed. Revelation 21. And there's Carrie Ann's picture of of the amazingness of, of new creation. So everyone's happy. There's kind of a city, but there's a river and there's a koala bear. I think maybe she has like this, this dream of being able to hold and cuddle a koala bear. So she's got one there. So And honestly, if you've ever thought that, like, wow, wouldn't that be great to kind of like play around with a lion and not get your head bit off and, you know, that whole thing? Well, new creation you're going to get to. It doesn't absolutely say you get to play with lions, but I'm pretty sure you can take me up on it if it doesn't happen. Revelation 21, verse 1. Notice the connection back to Genesis chapter 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And he goes on to describe the new Jerusalem here. And as you go down later into Revelation 21, verse 22. And there's other places we could go in the prophets and various things, but for the sake of time, I just want to read some of this picture to you. Verse 22, he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then chapter 22, verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You see, this is the world that we all want, isn't it? You know, all of us, as we look at the world around us, we all know that there's a world that we really think should be here. Right? We think there ought to be a world where children aren't starving to death in Africa every day. We think that there ought to be a world where when the children are starving to death that there's people on the other side of the planet that have more food than they know what to do with that there shouldn't be any poverty we know that there's that the world somehow ought to be full of plentiful and a, just full of plenty and abundance instead of starvation and lack there ought to be a world where there is no chf that there's a world where there shouldn't be any pollution but instead there should be purity where there isn't destruction but instead there is creation where there's no shortage of time, where we don't always feel pressed for time to hang out with friends, to make good relationships, to make something beautiful. We know there's a world where there shouldn't be any exploitation, where there shouldn't be any human trafficking. We know there's a world where people shouldn't be getting hurt, where you shouldn't be getting hurt. We know that the world should be where there is no war, where nations, rather than trying to kill one another and to dominate each other, Ought to be working together to bring glory and honor to God. We know there's a world where there should be no more darkness or evil or detestable things, but we all ought to be able to have perfect relationship with God. We know there's a world where humans ought to be able to reign over the earth in the way they were supposed to. Don't we all know this is the world we all really want? And God says, I am going to make it. And the reason I drew it this way is because I want you to know that from the beginning, this was God's intention. Because, sadly, a lot of us have, not, have lost our hope. Because what you've put your hope in is you hope someday you get to go to heaven. And heaven, in the way that you think of it, is this kind of ethereal place with clouds and harps. And we it's really boring. Did I just say that? Yeah. Right? For a lot of you, and especially, especially I find with younger people, they just kind of say, you know what? I don't want to go there. There's a lot of stuff I want to do. And it's because we misunderstand what God's future hope and intention for us is. You see, I want to say this clearly because I think it's been misunderstood in the church for a long time. The Christian hope is not to spend eternity in heaven. The Christian hope is to spend eternity on a new resurrected earth reigning over it. When you die, you get to go to heaven. But that's temporary until heaven comes back to earth. Did you just read what I read in Revelation 21? That heaven comes back to earth and it says God once again dwells with his people, dwells on the earth. You see that that picture of an eternal worship service? In Revelation we have that where every tribe, tongue, people, and nation come together to sing worship to the Lamb. But that isn't everything. Do you understand that? That the new creation where God intends for us to live for eternity is an earthly dwelling. Now, it's not like this one, because this one is messed up, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. The place that God has for us is a resurrected and a renewed creation. That's what he desires for us. Now, you might think I'm a heretic by saying that our hope isn't heaven, but I think that's what Revelation says very clearly. You see, when Paul talks about the mortal body that we live in now versus the resurrection body, he talks about it like a seed versus a full-grown plant. He says this mortal body we all live in is like a seed, but there's a point where that seed will grow and it will bear fruit and it will be something amazing. I think you can use the same analogy of the creation that we live in now. This is but a seed. And what would you rather have, a bunch of tomato seeds or some homegrown amazing tomatoes? That's, well, I hope that's an easy question. Maybe you guys don't like tomatoes an apricot seed or some amazing apricots of a fresh apricot tree, right? The fruit and the amazing growth is what we hope for. But sometimes we look at this life and we think, you know what? There's so much that I like here. Here's what I have to tell you. Everything that is good in this world will be in that world even better. And all the bad that is in this world will not be in that world. Think for me, think with me for a second, what it would be like to have a world with no death. Why do we feel such urgency with relationships? And like we always feel like we got to rush and we never feel like we have enough time with enough people, right? I I know hardly just a few of you, right? And it's because, what? I'm crunched for time. Why am I t- crunched for time? Because i got a deadline. It's called death. And I only got so much time until there, and so do you. And so we only have so much time before we die. And that's relationships. That's things you want to know. It's everything in your life is crunched because... You don't have enough time before you die. Imagine a time when there will no longer be death or decay. People, you know, they ask, well, when we get to heaven, and I'd like to say when we get to the new heavens and new earth, when we get to the new creation, will I just kind of know everybody? People seem to have this idea that, like, instantly I'm going to know everything about God and instantly I'm going to know everybody that's there. Like we're going to have little signs that float over our head, you know? Hi, I'm Josh. Maybe it tells a little bit of my story or something. Or we're going to like touch each other and like download or something. (laughs) It's like, why do we feel like we need to know that instantly? You'll have eternity. You know what? I could spend 10 years with each one of you and I still wouldn't have used up any of the time. Eternity is going to be forever being able to be in relationship with other human beings, to travel to different places on the new earth, to make new music, to make new art, to make new instruments, to make new music to do all kinds of amazing things that you haven't even thought of. right? As I'm painting this picture, I'm just, I, I feel so inadequate because it's so much better than even what we imagine here. But for many of us, we've lost a hope of heaven because we're satisfied with this world. And we think we're, we're content. We think that, you know what, I've got it pretty good here. No, you don't. This ain't anything like what it's going to be like. You know how you feel busy all the time? That's the number one problem. You ask people, what's wrong? I'm busy. I'm just so busy with my life. Well, that's because you've got this deadline that's pressing against you, and one day it'll be gone. Don't live for the seed. Live for the fruit. Now, you notice the line goes from a solid line to a dashed line because I just painted a great picture of the world as it should be, and the fact is that we don't live in a world that's like that, do we? We live in a world that's full of war and poverty and exploitation and all sorts of horrible things that we don't even need to talk about. And why is that? Because something happened here. Right? What happened between on the way from new creation to the, or sorry from creation to the new creation, what happened? The fall. In Genesis 3, Adam disobeyed God. And it wasn't like it was just a small thing. It was cataclysmic. It was a cosmic treason that Adam committed and destroyed It brought curse upon the entire earth. That when you read that section there in Genesis 3, you see that what God did as a result of that sin is that all of the earth, everything, was subjected to futility, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. So from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, we've basically taken a detour. That we left the line that was headed towards new creation. We've taken a detour. And that detour goes down for an awful long time. But then God turns the corner and he says, I'm going to get you back there. That he has never lost sight of where his intention was from the very beginning. So we can see the next slide. Maybe. There we go. So you remember the first creation? This is when people usually start laughing slowly. Um, I don't know why. What is it that is funny in that picture to you? Um, Yeah, see... My student really wanted to draw me so that she could draw the, uh, the bird having a little poop on my head there. Um, but I thought this was a great depiction of what happened at the fall. All of creation, right, that the animals and humans no longer interact the way they're supposed to. The bunny's dead. The, the lion looks pretty angry now, right? Like, I better get out of there. Um, I'm still in my birthday suit, but now I'm ashamed of it. Um... And don't look too happy about it. And you got Satan there, and the tree is no longer happy. It's angry. You got a nice polluting nuclear plant. Um, that's the world we live in. I'd rather live in the other world. right? And I really wish God would bring about the other world. And thankfully, that's exactly what he's done. Now, I think so many times I've read Genesis 3 and I've thought about the fall. But until I've understood creation and new creation and where it was headed... It just really didn't hit me as sad as it has now. Like, I think about the world the way that it should be and the way that he wants it to be. And then I think about what Adam did and how it messed everything up and how it cursed everything, decay and disease. And just everything came in at that point, death. And it brought about all this destruction. And I get so sad thinking, wow, it just it deviated everything. But thankfully, God had a plan, right? He didn't get taken by surprise, but instead he had a plan to bring it back on track. And that's the next slide. That's the idea of redemption. That, yeah, we, we got sent from the fall, we got sent down this long path. And over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to fill in a lot of the details on this chart for you. So you'll see, you know, why is there squiggly lines and why do they split and why is there this other line and all that. And you'll, you'll begin to understand what that's all about. But redemption What God was doing from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 was redeeming the world and getting it back to what he'd wanted from the beginning. And all of that centers in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. All of what God was doing in redeeming the world and bringing it back to what he wanted it to be all centers in what Jesus Christ did while he was on this earth. I read to you a little bit from Romans 8 earlier when I said that the creation was subjected to futility. I want to read that in its context now. Because I want you to understand, so often we think of redemption as God saving me. But when you see the story this way, that doesn't make sense anymore, does it? So there was a world and the world went bad, so God saved me. That doesn't fit with the story, right? There was a world that was really great that God was trying to make into something. It went bad, so God redeemed The world, right? He fixed the whole world. He didn't just fix individual humans. Romans 8, beginning in verse 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, Paul says God is redeeming the whole creation that from the beginning, that has been subjected to futility. He describes it like a, a woman in childbirth groaning and can't wait for its full redemption. And he says that the full redemption of the earth is going to come with the full redemption of his people, of us. Because from the beginning, go back to the beginning, God said, Adam, why I've created you is to reign over this earth. So for the earth to flourish and be once again brought back to shalom, you need humans to be in right relationship and ruling properly over that. So he had to redeem humanity in order to redeem the entire earth. And that's what he's doing. So for him to redeem humanity and everything that he was going to do, if we go to the next slide, really comes down to one point in history. And that is 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus Christ, he came and he lived and he died on a cross and he was buried in a tomb and then he resurrected and he ascended. And that was the turning point of all history, that as everything was going down, he turned the corner. Jesus is the center and the climax of all of history, of the entire story. Everything since then has been God implementing the redemption that he had started there and that he has been working on that for the past 2,000 years. Now, I painted a picture earlier of of this world that we all really want, but for many of you, you probably wonder, how do I really know that's going to happen? Because, you know what, honestly, this world doesn't look like it's getting there. It seems to be going downhill, if anything. I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, that world is going to happen because God said it would. In Revelation, he said, write down these words because they are trustworthy and true. Okay? There's one reason. There's another reason. We've already seen it. Because 2,000 years ago, when Jesus walked on this earth, he gave us glimpses of through his life, as the king of new creation came and walked among us, he gave us glimpses of what this life will be like. Let me read you from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. You think of all the things that the fall wrought. Look at Jesus' life. He overcame them. Matthew four twenty-three, And he went throughout all Galilee. That's a whole region in northern Israel. Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease. And every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. You see, Jesus Christ intervened 2,000 years ago, and I could go to different places. He calms a storm, He feeds thousands that are hungry. You see, He raises someone from the dead. Everything that we see from the fall and we see this world get messed up. Jesus gave us a glimpse while he walked on this earth and that the guys who wrote this book, Matthew, Mark, these guys lived and saw these things. So if you want confirmation that this is going to happen, take it on the basis of these eyewitnesses that saw it happen while they were there. And then Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. I am going to raise from the dead. And that is going to be the first part of new creation. I will be the first one. As the Bible says, he's the first fruits. He's the first one that now raises from the dead. And then he says, we all are the first fruits because you are part of new creation if the spirit of God dwells within you. So he is now taking it back to new creation. And he promised through his life, he showed. And then through his prophet, he promised exactly what he was going to do. Now, when you think back to what it was like to live with Jesus, wouldn't you have liked to live with him? The guy could take, you know, a basket of food and feed 3,000. He could take someone who died and raise him from the dead. If you were sick, if you had any affliction, he could heal you. If you were demon-possessed, if you had some kind of affliction that was demonic and spiritual, he could free you from it. And it says in that entire region, Jesus healed all of their diseases and all of their afflictions. I don't know about you, but I'd kind of rather live there than live here. Because there's an awful lot of disease and afflictions and hunger and other things. I want that world to come. Well, he looks at us and he says, all right, you're a part of me bringing it to this earth. You're a part of new creation. That here we live kind of in the in-between time. And on that chart, we live on the squiggly line from redemption to new creation. Where we live here to bring about his new creation in this world. Until he finally returns and brings it all to an end. So last slide, that's the story. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Now over the course of the summer, we're going to fill in a lot of details and we're going to retell that story, but that's really the core of the story. That's what this whole book is about. He created something, he intended it to become something, it went bad and now he's fixing it. And that's the core of the story. I think you can teach kids that, right? So my kid last night, he was crying in bed and I went in there to find out what was wrong with him and he was sad because we'd gone to this water park the last, um, last couple of days. Um, it was our anniversary, and so we'd gone somewhere, and we took our kids with us. And he had so much fun at the water park that he was sad. He basically wanted to live the rest of his life there. <laughs> hey, seven-year-old, you know? He just thought, I just want to go back there. I'm so sad. I want to spend every day there. I love it. He said, I love it. And he's crying. Now, what do you say, right? How, how do you walk a seven-year-old through something like that? No, son, that's just not the way it is. You just need to suck it up. <laughs> well, this week while we were there, actually, I was teaching my kids this. You know, they sent me the, the rough copy of these, and I kind of walked my kids through it, and so I brought them back to it. And I said, You know what, son? I go, The the joy that you experience at the water park and how much fun you had kind of floating and relaxing and swimming and doing all that wonderful stuff. I said, You know what? God intended for you to enjoy that. And in fact, he's going to make a world for you where you're going to have... Something better than any water park you've imagined. And it's going to be so much better. But you know what? Although you can enjoy that now, that's not what he intended for us right now. Because what he wants us to be a part of is his redeeming and bringing about something in this world. And although we may take breaks and it's really good for us to have times of enjoyment like that, right now there's kind of a little bit of a different focus for us. That we have work to do while we're here. Because you know what? And I talked to him and there's other parts of this story where I said, you know what? A lot of those people that we were kind of playing with at the park, at the water park, a lot of them are going to hell. And that's more important to God right now than us just enjoying things. And he settled down and he said, All right. Because I was able to paint a picture for him of that, that desire that you want isn't wrong. And I think that's the way we approach kids a lot of times. We try and tell them, No, no, you just need to you know, kind of suck it up and the, that's not what you want. No, a lot of those desires are good. It's just we shouldn't try and fulfill them here, right? God's intended for a place where it's going to be better than we can ever imagine. And so I just walked him through it like that. And so there's three things, and I said these at the beginning, but I just want to emphasize them again. There's three things I hope you get. God has a plan. He's had a plan since the beginning, and the plan hasn't been broken. He's going to get us there. And even though we're not there yet, he has a plan. And for some of you in your lives right now, it seems like God isn't in control but God is in control. He's in control of your life. He's in control of what's going on, even though it may seem like it's out of control. The second thing is every time man messes it up, this is the overall story, but there's a whole bunch of little stories in there that are the same thing. Every time man messes it up, God redeems it over and over and over again. So some of you feel like your life is so messed up that you have so messed it up that you can't do anything to fix it. And you know what? It's true. You can't do anything to fix it. But God can. He can redeem it. And the the shift here in history is at the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you've wrecked your life, he's the answer for redemption for your life as well. To bring you in to be a part of that new creation. And finally, I just want you to have a hope for eternity on a new resurrected earth that will be more amazing than anything you've ever imagined. Instead of hoping for some ethereal heaven that most of us admittedly don't really want to go to, I hope you begin to see the vision that God paints for us of the amazing eternity that we have to hope for and that we can live in light of that hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that his life and death and resurrection are at the center of all of history. God, it's just, it's amazing for us as we look at this story to see all that he's done. Thank you for purchasing us with the imperishable blood of your Son, that you have done this at such great price, that you have redeemed us. You are redeeming the world, and you are redeeming each one of us out of the messes that we have made. And you are doing it by the blood of your Son. Lord, we are eternally grateful. We love you so much. We want to serve you as your people. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.